I'm Rob Shank here, host of Shank Talks Bonhoeffer, a podcast all about the life, times, and interests of this very brave and brilliant young German church leader during the rise of Adolf Hitler and Nazism in Germany, one of the first and most courageous voices to speak out uh, from a religious platform against the tyranny uh, that he saw coming in what would become uh, the uh, dictatorship, the racialized dictatorship of Adolf Hitler and his Third Reich. He would lose his life for that act of courage, but not before leaving us a wonderful body of literature that gives us insights into the application of ethics and concepts of justice. And that's what the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute is all about. So we invite you to find out more about uh, how uh, you might learn uh, from the experience uh, of this remarkable actor in history. You can find out more about the Institute at tdbi.org. Uh, and here uh, on uh, this podcast, we like to have conversations with individuals who in many ways uh, continue the good work of uh, people like Bonhoeffer. And today I have with me a wonderful friend, uh, someone I know personally as much as uh, work alongside of professionally from time to time. Uh, we met in a, in a rather um, intimidating environment for me at Oxford University when uh, Dr. Icon Erdemir uh, evaluated some research work I was doing in Turkey at the time. And uh, so uh, I welcome Icon Erdemir, who has since become a dear friend. Uh, and you'll hear from him in a moment. But first, let me share with you uh, a little bit of a professional biography on this uh, remarkable activist in the area of human rights. Uh, Icon is a former member of the Turkish parliament. Uh, he is today Director of International Affairs Research at the Anti-Defamation League and is a member of the steering group for uh, the International Panel of Parliamentarians for Freedom of Religion or Belief. He is an award-winning analyst on Turkish politics, the economy, and foreign policy with 25 years of experience in academia, think tanks, and politics. Icon has been an outspoken advocate for democracy, pluralism, rule of law, minority rights, and freedom of religion or belief in the Middle East and beyond. He is a frequent contributor to debates in global media outlets on foreign policy, security, illicit finance, sanctions, radical Islam, terrorism, extremism, and hate crimes. 
But of all of that, for me, he is a wonderful companion on the road to a better today and a brighter tomorrow. So Icon, it gives me not just honor, but great joy to welcome you to a conversation here at Schenk Talks Bonhoeffer. Welcome, my friend. Thank you, Rob, for that generous introduction, for this kind invitation. It's always a pleasure uh, to be with you um, since we met uh, back in 2015. Um, you, you have been such a great uh, friend, not only to me, but also to my family. Uh, and uh, I have been enriched uh, by that experience. Likewise, and I'm so happy we found each other uh, during that unusual exercise uh, at Oxford. Uh, I don't mind telling you that uh, I was a little intimidated presenting the results of my research on evangelicals as a religious minority in Turkey. Uh, and in your very friendly and generous critique of my work, uh, I learned a lot just in that exchange and continue to learn a lot from you. But before we get into your professional expertise, which is considerable, I like our friends out there in podcast land uh, to know you uh, maybe as I do. Um, and that means we go into your personal story. Would you mind sharing a little bit about your own upbringing, your formation? Uh, it will be a little different than most of my European-based and North American-based guests. And that just adds uh, to our interest. So um, I know you weren't born a professor. You started out as something else. <laughs> so please tell us, where did it all begin? Sure, that's correct. So I was born uh, in Turkey, uh, in uh, Turkey's fourth most populous city called Bursa. And it's an interesting province which has shaped me uh, because I, I call it the cross between Florence and Detroit. <laughs> because on the one hand, you know, this is a former Ottoman capital with a long history, uh, with a lot of, you know, historic architecture and tradition. And at the same time, it's Turkey's industrial powerhouse, including automotive and textile, really like an, an export engine. So it's an interesting blend of tradition and modernity, hmm. you know, inward-looking values as well as outward-looking dynamism and energy. So I, I was born to a, a, a secular family. Uh, and when I say a secular family, what I mean is we had family members across the spectrum, you know, from very pious, practicing Sunni Muslims, you know, to secular Muslims. But in general, everyone believed in the secular Republican values. That is, that mosque and state should be separate, that the Turkish Republic should be Western-looking uh, a Western-looking democratic country, uh, and that, you know, pluralism, diversity, and peaceful coexistence are the values to go for. So I was 
lucky, I would say, to be born into such a family where I was inculcated with those values. But here, a quick footnote about Turkey. Turkey is a very interesting country. Uh, it is because indeed. It is, it is, it used to be the only Muslim majority country within NATO, within the transatlantic alliance. It was the first Muslim majority country to recognize Israel. And uh, it was, again, the first Muslim majority country to become a member of the Council of Europe. And throughout the Cold War, it was, you know, a really a staunch ally of not only the Western alliance, but also the Western values. But at the same time, uh, although Turkey could have been a great example for other Muslim majority countries about how to combine, you know, democracy, free markets, uh, and religious freedoms, um, it lagged when it comes to minority rights, religious freedoms, uh, and diversity issues. So, uh, Turkey's vast majority of Muslims are Sunni Muslims, but there is also a sizable, roughly five to ten percent of Alevi Muslims. You know, these are non-Sunni, uh, a, a non-Sunni community uh, that happens to have a more liberal outlook theologically, and they have often been uh, persecuted and marginalized. And uh, in I've fact, recently, this, I've recently kept company uh, with some leaders in the community here in the United States and learned a lot. I, I was ignorant of their story. So thank you for mentioning. We may do a future podcast uh, examining their plight. And in fact, that, has, uh, that was the topic that drew me during my doctoral studies. And I wrote my dissertation, you know, as a secular Sunni Muslim, on Turkey's largest religious minority, namely Alevis. And I was very interested in the way in which they were gradually being incorporated into the Turkish system, but not fully, always remaining a second class of citizens. But at the same time, of course, this is no different than the story of Turkey's Christians and Jews, you know, all the way from the Greek Orthodox to the Armenian Apostolic to Syriac Christians uh, to Turkey's own mainly Sephardic Jewish community. So uh, my upbringing uh, has basically exposed me to not only the good in Turkey that I highlighted in terms of you know, being a Western-looking democracy, but at the same time to all the controversies as the Turkish society uh, failed to hold a, an and a, an inclusive and a productive uh, debate about how to tackle some of these key shortcomings when it comes to equal citizenship, when it comes to freedom of religion or belief, when it comes to protecting minorities, and, and, and more importantly, when it comes to eradicating hate and prejudice that have permeated uh, the entire political spectrum, and again, I would argue, the, the entire uh, social landscape. I deliberately left out uh, your the list of your alma maters uh, because I wanted to talk to you about that. It, 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 it seems that 
your educational formation uh, reflects very much the pluralism uh, that uh, has become so much a marker of your professional work. Uh, tell us about that, your, your own educational bona fides. Sure. So after five years in Bursa, my hometown, uh, at an elementary school, uh, you know, through a centralized Mandarin exam system that Turkey has, I was lucky uh, to basically earn my way into uh, what was called Robert College. And don't be misled by the name. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's a junior high and, and, uh, and a high school. Basically, it's, a, it's, it's grade six to 11 back then. Mm. And this was, by the time I attended this high school, you know, it was an English language medium, secular school. But when it was first established in 1863, uh, through a basically uh, a charter provided by an Ottoman sultan, it was the first school abroad by the American board. So it was a, a Protestant missionary school. I see. And when I attended it, it was no longer a religious school. And the only religious instruction was the compulsory religious instruction mandated by the Turkish state, hence a, a Sunni theological doctrines at that school. But still, I think that the ethos of pluralism and, and tolerance uh, was very strong at this institution, and I believe it's still very strong. And I was blessed to have Christian and Jewish friends at the school, because this school traditionally, since the Ottoman times, uh, had numerous successful uh, Jewish and Christian, first Ottoman subjects, and then Republican citizens attend the school. And as you can imagine, peer-to-peer -peer learning is as much important as, you know, the formal instruction in a school. Of course. And then, of course, you know, after my four years in Ankara uh, at Bilkent University, I was, again, lucky to get into Harvard, where I got my MA and PhD. And, you know, there's no need to tell our audience today what a great kind of uh, melting pot of you know, cultures and wisdom uh, and learning from all around the world that was. So I was Indeed. really shaped by my time at Harvard, also professionally, because I studied for my PhD, social anthropology, oh. which is a discipline that puts a heavy emphasis on building empathy, hmm. you know, putting ourselves in the shoes of other people, seeing the world through their eyes, and a discipline uh, that values greatly the, the human diversity and, and, and the value of each culture, each faith, each human community and practice uh, have uh, for our shared humanity. I could listen to you for hours icon and just that alone would make a very lovely podcast episode thank you so much for sharing that life experience uh with us because uh, even in this 
reference to empathy, so much of what you do, what I do, what we do through our institute uh, has to do with the true humanity, the, the human element. And empathy is so much a part of that. I'm so glad you mentioned that. And we'll return to it uh, during this, this conversation. But at some point, you then are elected to the Turkish parliament. Am I correct? Forgive my appalling ignorance here, but is it the Grand Assembly? Yes, that's it's the Grand National Assembly of Turkey. Grand National so Turkey Assembly. is a unicameral system at this point. So there's only one parliament. When I was elected, you know, I was one of the 550 uh, legislators. And that came uh, after seven years of teaching uh, at a public university in Ankara. And in fact, it was the culmination of some of the work I already did as an academic slash activist. And I would like to actually begin with that uh, because I was not just teaching in class with my better health, Tuba, who is also an academic, who was also an academic at the same university. Uh, we were both involved in uh, a number of advocacy and uh, activism uh, initiatives. Uh, which all, almost always revolved around issues of minority rights and coalition building. And one, my one big calling back then was to work together with a coalition uh, of different faiths, ethnicities, and, and, and political uh, traditions to push for a comprehensive hate crimes bill in Turkey. Mm -hmm. Because back then, when I was elected in 2011, Turkey lacked a hate crimes bill, uh, and Turkey also lacked a formal, you know, governmental mechanism uh, for uh, promoting equality and um, fighting against discrimination and hate. You know, not just the legislative side, but also the administrative side uh, was missing. So th the first legislative initiative I had in parliament was to file a motion to establish an ad hoc committee on hate crimes. You know, the, the first step you take defines who you are as a lawmaker, right? So that was my take. And uh, interestingly, I was privileged to work as a lawmaker with the same coalition I used to be a member of. I see. So I already had this great network from all across Turkish society, individuals and groups committed to uh, passing a hate crimes legislation. So I could be their voice in parliament. In fact, uh, one of the reasons why I waited, uh, you know, uh, until uh, December 2012, like almost uh, a year and a half, to file a hate crimes bill a draft a hate crimes bill was because I was waiting for this coalition to put together their common denominator hate crimes bill. And I adapted exactly their wording. So I didn't want to impose my own take. I simply wanted to be a conduit for the, the common wisdom of this coalition. Now, 
And may I ask, just uh, out of curiosity, who were, you know, I don't necessarily mean for you to to uh, give specific uh, names, but just what sorts of groups were part of this coalition? So there were faith groups. So there were uh, Christian, Jewish, Alevi, and Sunni Muslim representatives. At the same time, we had labor unions, we had youth organizations, we had LGBTQ advocacy organizations. So it was really a, a, a great mix. And uh, until the very end, except for a Sunni conservative advocacy organization, uh, they all uh, worked together and agreed on a common denominator. And the only reason the Sunni conservative NGO uh, fell out at the very end was that they didn't agree to having the LGBTQ issue mentioned as part of the comprehensive hate crimes, uh, you know, um, requests. And uh, so what I can tell you is, ju ju just to make this more concrete for our audience members, like what is the value of consensus building? Like what wisdom can co a coalition bring to a legislature? Uh, I was very big on both hate speech and hate crime. You know, all my life I've been very vocal and at the forefront of calling hate speech out and also believed in criminalizing it to some extent. And I know this probably uh, raises with some tension with the First Amendment in the United States, but back in Turkey, witnessing firsthand um, the consequences of hate speech, especially inciting hate speech, I wanted uh, you know, a stronger uh, legal protections for minorities facing hate speech. Whereas the coalition told me that after long deliberations, they wanted a comprehensive hate crimes bill, but not a hate speech bill. And they said, look, we know we are the main victims of hate speech in Turkey, but we also know Turkey lacks freedom of expression, freedom of press, freedom of conscience. Hmm. And we can guess that a hate crimes bill that also includes hate speech could then be abused by governments, successive Turkish governments, to further restrict freedom of speech and expression. And this was a very altruistic and wise take on their part. And Indeed. I abided by, and over the years, I learned what a great wisdom that was. Because even when my draft hate crimes bill was combined with some other drafts and finally passed uh, in 2014, in 2014, it was a bittersweet moment for me. On the one hand, Turkey now had a comprehensive hate crimes bill, but at the same time, because the wording was changed a bit, it turned into a semi-blasphemy law. Right, yeah. the government basically incorporated it uh, for its own um, political goals. Mm -hmm. And had we pushed for a very strong hate speech element in that, uh, that could have been 
used as further ammunition to restrict freedom of speech. So this, Indeed. I think, should remind us all as advocates, as legislators, as researchers and academics, that dialogue is key, consensus building is key, and there is always great wisdom when different parties come together and deliberate. And I'd like to sit just for a couple of seconds because we don't have the amount of time I would love to have with you uh, in this one episode, but I do want to sit for a minute and and think of the contrast uh, that you just set in front of us between what the coalition group did in in a in a very um, selfless, non self serving way, but thinking of the greater good, the common good, and acting in a way that made them vulnerable. Uh, and yet, at the same time, they were thinking more of others than themselves. And I'm going to ring a little bell here because I like to ring a bell when I find a nexus with Bonhoeffer's concepts. And Bonhoeffer spoke often and, and uh, most um, particularly about the person of Jesus as the model for uh, being for the other being a person, or as he called Jesus, the man for others, that you think of others. And then you drew a contrast there with what the government did in its own interest uh, in discounting that bill uh, in that way out of its self-interest. So you had one group working to bring this about with yourself in a selfless way, and the other, something to the contrary. So uh, I want to sit with that for a moment, because in the first instance, the coalition acting in such a noble and humanitarian way, and I think that remains the ideal always. And yes, there is realpolitik, there is the real, uh, you know, the way things have to work sometimes. Uh, but it doesn't mean we should uh, dispense with the ideal. And what what a beautiful picture of that. Uh, so I'm curious, though, about the reception of that whole proposal uh, for the hate crimes bill in the first place. How was it initially received? Did you receive a lot of uh, pushback to it? What was the atmosphere at that time when you proposed the bill in the first instance? Now, unlike the United States, where many states have comprehensive hate crimes bill, thanks often to the great work my current institution, Anti-Defamation League, has done. Indeed. Uh, in Turkey, uh, there wasn't even the notion of hate crimes. So... When with this coalition, we were doing the initial groundwork in my pre-parliament days, our experience was often people did not even know the term. They couldn't differentiate between hate speech and hate crimes, and they didn't even know the term itself. Hmm. So there was no desire for a hate crimes bill in the absence of even the concept itself. 
So this was, you know, we knew all along that this was going to be a, a long path of educating the wider public and that this has to be a patient struggle uh, and also an understanding struggle. Like we, we, we couldn't start from a judgmental position uh, of blaming the wider public because they didn't even know of the concept. Uh, at the same time, uh, I think um, another strategy was uh, we, we had to think deeply on is, is this just a legal matter? Because sometimes uh, politicians uh, love to reduce everything down to legislation or regulations. And when we're talking about eradicating hate and prejudice, we have to be very frank about it. Like, can we legislate hate out of existence? My plain and simple answer is no. Meaning legislation is a great tool uh, providing incentives and disincentives and, and, and laws and administrative uh, you know, measures will go a long way. But if we leave out the enormous uh, societal work, the enormous human-to-human -human work we need to do to change values, to promote understanding, diversity, tolerance, inclusion, uh, legislation alone cannot succeed. So that was also part of my messaging that accompanied my legislative initiative. And it wasn't just, for example, I had this long interview on hate crimes in a major Turkish daily where I explained, you know, this is both a, a social work and a legal work. I also tried to become an example or become the message myself. So just to give you a couple of examples, um, when uh, in 2014, uh, when I came across as a lawmaker, uh, a, a wonderful global survey carried out by Anti-Defamation League, my, my current employer, I was shocked to see, this was called the Global 100. I was shocked to see the Turkish society uh, was more anti-Semitic, according to the G100 index that ADL developed, than the Iranian society. Now, I thought this should be a wake-up call for Turkey because Turkey sees itself as Western, a NATO member, a member of the Council of Europe, and looks to Iran as you know, a, a backward Islamic republic. But the Turkish public was more anti-Semitic, according to the survey, than the Iranian society. So immediately, I had a press conference at the Turkish parliament on Rosh Hashanah just to warn my fellow citizens okay, this is where we are as a society and we have to reflect on this. So the next month, I filed a motion to establish an ad hoc committee to combat anti-Semitism. Uh, each year, I made sure I attended the International Holocaust Remembrance Day events in Turkey. Uh, in 2013, when Turkey and Israel uh, were going through the lowest point in bilateral diplomatic history because of a flotilla crisis, of a recent flotilla crisis, like, I accepted an invitation to attend an event at the Hebrew University's Truman Center for Advancement of Peace. Uh, and 
uh, was the rare voice who appeared in the, in the Israeli media preaching the virtues of, you know, peaceful coexistence and win-win cooperation in the Eastern Mediterranean. Now, you, of course, as someone who knows politics, society, and theology very well, could, could have easily warned me, look, there will be a, a price to pay, right? These measures indeed, indeed. don't always receive a lot of praise. But I think ultimately we have to be the message that we preach. That is, we have to act the part that we hope our fellow citizens will also adopt. And um, in my own experience, uh, now looking back uh, as you know, a recovering politician, what I can say is I have never ever regretted even one day all the, the costly choices I made vis-a-vis -vis my interfaith outreach, uh, whether it's you know attending the first baptism at an Armenian apostolic church, the first one in a century in Turkey, or whether uh, it was me exposing that the Turkish parliament blocked a Protestant church's website, uh, claiming that it was pornographic content. I've never, ever regretted all the steps I've taken and the risks, quote unquote, risks I've taken, because every single time it might have cost me some votes. It might have cost me some, you know, horrible coverage in extremist media, but every single time there was an enormous dividend and that was meeting wonderful people, making wonderful connections with individuals like you. For example, right after that Protestant website incident at the parliament, which was quite a scandal, right? The parliament remedied that mistake you know, I, I went up to the Speaker of the Parliament and they fixed it, they apologized, but that wasn't enough. Like this is icon. I believe in restorative justice through human contact. So I bought one of these branded Parliament chocolate boxes, flew to Diyarbakir, the other you know, side of the east, east part of Turkey, went to this Protestant church, uh, met the pastor and his flock, on a Sunday, uh, and I said, I truly apologize. You know, this shouldn't have happened. Your website is now accessible in Parliament, but I know that doesn't fix it. You should know I truly apologize. And, you know, I'm here as a resource for you. And, you know, we became good colleagues. I think that's the way forward. That is, yes, we pay a price maybe economically and politically, but at the same time, uh, we should cherish all the, the wonderful relationships that we build and all the great human beings that we, you know, come to know. Well, I like to say that the reward is commensurate with the risk. Uh, and it was uh, for you, uh, and I know eventually that cost would become very, very great indeed. And you can get into that if you wish or not. I'll leave that to your discretion. But 
you would pay a very, very high price for acting on your principles. And I'm ringing another bell here because, of course, this gets into Bonhoeffer's idea of the concrete. That it's not enough to have the theoretical. Uh, it's not enough to remain in the in the uh, space of ideas, but it has to have a practical result in real life and in real relationships. And and you did that uh, so beautifully in that one uh, instance. Um, I'd like to turn the, the conversation a little bit uh, because, of course, things have changed in Turkey. Things have changed in the world. Uh, when we think here a lot about Europe and North America, only because that was the sphere that uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually lived and worked in. And we see the rise of hate crimes, certainly of anti-Semitism in Europe, in the United States, elsewhere in, in uh, the Americas, uh, and, and, and globally. And I want to examine that uh, a little bit. And then, of course, uh, anytime uh, any uh, group is suffering, uh, it sets a stage for others to suffer similarly. Can we talk a little bit about the rise of anti-Semitism uh, in these specific places, but then generally as well, and what the implications of that uh, are today? Of course, we needn't say um, our podcast family knows very well that the backdrop to Bunhofer's entire drama is anti-Semitism. Uh, on a scale that still staggers the imagination, uh, but sadly also informs some of the streams of anti-Semitic actors uh, who are, uh, you know, part of this rise. What's the current state of things, and and how are you personally, and also? Uh, professionally uh, with the new platform you have uh, at ADL. Uh, how are you seeing it and how are you engaging it? Now, let me highlight uh, some of the recent trends. You know, as someone who has worked uh, on antisemitism and all sorts of hate crimes for decades now, uh, let me highlight some of the new trends that I see. The first one is uh, social media. Uh, has really complicated things. Uh, it has really amplified uh, the reach and content of hate and prejudice. So it has been uh, a headwind. Uh, but at the same time, uh, social media also offers us opportunities uh, to get a positive message across. And I know, and you know, Rob, that it's often more challenging to disseminate love than hate in today's social media environment. But again, we have both the pros and cons. So that's one big difference. Second, I think we're now seeing an unprecedented extent to which uh, state and some non-state actors are actively involved in disinformation that revolves around 
anti-Semitism, and other forms of hate and prejudice. Basically, hate has become uh, the bread and butter of authoritarian politics as uh, autocrats and authoritarian leaders capitalize on hate and prejudice, capitalize on scapegoating to sustain their own uh, political welfare, basically, at the expense of, I would say, the world, not just the victims, but the entire world. So that's the second trend I see. The third trend, which is very important, is no one is immune and no politics is immune from this epidemic. Uh, that is, we see this both on the right and on the left. Although oftentimes people are willing to blame the other side of the political spectrum and ignore the problem on their own side of the spectrum. And this is, we see this in the Middle East, we see this in Europe, we see this in the Americas. So it's a global phenomenon. And so from based on these trends, uh, what are some of the uh, policy actions or even individual actions uh, I recommend? One is, again, as a former lawmaker, I would argue that yes, legislators have a responsibility to take measures, but at the same time, corporations too have a responsibility. So my call here is for social media companies to moderate more effectively hate and prejudice on their platforms, and also to de-platform some of the most egregious violators, people who use these platforms to incite. Just to give you an example, the Iranian supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, has multiple accounts on Twitter and incites hate, anti-Semitic hate, uh, as well as other forms of hate uh, in different languages and still retains his platform, his handles, his accounts. I think this is unacceptable and social media companies, you know, not just Twitter, but all of them, need to come up with better measures against incitement and hate on their platforms. So that's one quick you know, uh, action that can be taken. Uh, second is uh, we as activists, former or current politicians, should speak to our own colleagues while we also go after perpetrators elsewhere. And I know it's always more difficult to speak to our own friends and our own communities, but we should call out anti-Semitic hate, anti-Christian hate, you know, anti-Muslim hate, anti-atheist hate, or all forms of hate, especially when we see it in our own group. And again, I was uh, an outlier in politics, uh, because I tended to do this. And as you can imagine, uh, it, it wasn't that welcome among my own colleagues. Uh, but ultimately, I think I was enough of a quote-unquote brand on this that I remember one day one of the, the pro-secular, you know, center-left politicians from my own political party used some language which was really hurtful 
to Turkey's Greek Orthodox Christian citizens. And I was attending, again, a religious freedom event in Berlin. And in the you know, middle of the night, I receive a phone call from a journalist saying, uh, look, this is your fellow lawmaker colleague, you know, using this hurtful language. Do you have anything to say about this? You know, I could have said, you know what, it's too sensitive an issue and that person is a, is a party whip and he can destroy me if I go after him. What I did was I sat down through the night, wrote a, 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 a nuanced apology. And through this, you know, weekly, I reached out to not only Turkey's Greek Orthodox citizens, but also to all the Jewish and Christian citizens, telling them that we understand the hurt that they have experienced over the decades, and that we should not only be more careful in our language, but also take active measures to remedy the problems. That is, I use a crisis, uh, a hateful, hurtful speech, as an opportunity not only to apologize, but also to convey to the grieved parties that we need more than an apology. We need restorative justice. Uh, and in fact, over the years in parliament, I took such action. Just to give you a couple of examples, uh, for example, I had a draft bill uh, for the restitution of citizenship to all ethnic and religious minorities and their descendants who have lost their citizenship within the last hundred years. Now, as you can imagine, from the transition from the Ottoman Empire to the Turkish Republic, Christians and Jews were often disproportionately victims either of being stripped of their citizenship of, or of their property. So that was an attempt at restorative justice. Or I drafted a bill to grant legal status to the worship places of Turkey's Alevi minority. And I thought it was important that this should come from a, a secular Sunni Muslim so that Turkey's Alevis know that their rights and freedoms is not just to be advocated by their own community members, but also by members of the majority. So what I call restorative justice is also all about, you know, reparations in making amends, uh, in trying to overcome decades, if not centuries, uh, of um, injury uh, and persecution that various groups have experienced. Well, of course, you are now here, based in the United States. I think that's a great loss for Turkey because of the progress that you were making there. And I don't know if you care to say a word just about what what the, the status of all those measures that, that you supported and even uh, initiated they are what, what they are today. But I'm also thinking, of course, about measures that can be taken in Europe, in uh, North America, but particularly in the United States, because we see some of these same trends, uh, some of them subtle, others of them quite blatant. Uh, and and they need to be addressed here. And, and I'm wondering what wisdom you can offer specifically to uh, 
groups like our own uh, at the Bonhoeffer Institute, our family uh, of supporters who tend to be activists of one kind or another. I mean, I, I like to think, you know, like kind tends to find like kind and and our folks like to do things. They like to get things done. So maybe we can talk for a minute about how what you see as doable um, and, and specifically, uh, you know, of course, I've been with you when you've been with your fellow parliamentarians uh, from other countries. What might be uh, being done now in Europe uh, or needs to be done in Europe? Because in some ways, I think that the problem at least in my estimation, my amateur uh, observation is that in in some cases it's worse in Europe than it is here. But we're quickly and and sadly catching up. What what needs to be done? What can be done? You know, there, although there's a long list, I would like to emphasize uh, two take home messages based on my own humble experience. One is the importance of nonpartisan work. That is, this work needs to be all-inclusive, which means a a lot of patience and understanding and a lot of explaining. Uh, It's it's basically about winning people over. And that requires a, 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 a moderation that that requires uh, a a stance, an approach uh, that is not judgmental, uh, but that is uh, kind of a, a patient, long-term attempt to literally win people one by one, whether in legislatures or outside. So that's my one big take-home message. The second one, hate is transnational. Uh, these days, Antisemitic conspiracies through social media, through state and non-state-backed outlets, uh, and other forms of hate just uh, move around the world in lightning speed. It's amplified. It's translated into multiple languages. Conspiracy theories and disinformation of different kinds dominates our airwaves, uh, social media, our conversations. So... The pushback or the remedy also needs to be global, transnational. So we need coalitions, not just interfaith or nonpartisan national coalitions, but we need global coalitions uh, to push back. You know, I've been involved since 2014 in one such initiative, the International Panel of Parliamentarians for Freedom of Religion or Belief. I'm still on the steering group. And we have over 300 lawmakers from around the world. And what I can tell you is we disagree on everything. We're Mm. from the entire spectrum, different faiths, but we agree on just one thing, Article 18, which is uh, of the the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is basically about freedom of religion or belief. So we should be able to bracket out other differences and focus on our sole goal and build coalitions that are transnational, interfaith, uh, and nonpartisan. So 
Uh, I, I know this sounds very simple. It's easier said than done. Uh, but at the same time, I think there is uh, uh, there will be great dividends if you can simply take these two small steps. And just to give you one example, when uh, you and I recently met at the Capitol Hill, uh, we were attending a reception where there was an international task force of lawmakers to combat online antisemitism. Indeed. That was exactly the kind of initiatives that we need more of. That is, people from you know Europe and the Americas and Asia coming and Africa coming together, you know, joining forces, learning from one another. And I think that process gives us also some uh, humility when we recognize the enormity of the problems at hand. But at the same time, resources, like we learn from best practices. And I think we deepen our sense of patience and understanding when we interact with one another. Since uh, on my part, that has always been the case in my encounters with you. I have been so touched and inspired uh, by your wisdom, uh, by your humanity, by your generosity. And all, but most importantly, uh, by your uh, brave stance and willingness to pay a price for your, uh, you know, convictions. Uh, and I think uh, we also need more of such individuals. That is, people who don't necessarily go with wider flows, who can take an individual moral stance wherever they are, at the workplace, at schools, at the pulpit, you know, uh, uh, in, 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 in the Congress, uh, to take action, to, to be uh, really the, the North Star, like showing the way for other colleagues. And thank you for all the great work you do, Rob. Well, thank you for your, your very generous words now. Icon, and you've been not just an inspiration for me and a model of all of this, but a real source of hope that it can be done on a scale necessary to make a change. I mean, of course, I'm all for uh, bringing about progress and change in every little way, because little ways eventually add up to the big consequential ways. But sometimes I have to say, I'm a little bit like, as we Christians uh, often refer to, Peter stepping outside of the boat and sinking in the waves. I, I get, you know, uh, I wonder, I lose my faith and confidence and wonder, can we really get this done at a level that really matters for so many in the world? And the scale of your work, at the parliament, of course, in Turkey, beyond that in your interparliamentarian work uh, in uh, bringing together global coalitions. Now what I see you doing at ADL, and I want to be sure to ask you how folks can find out more about the work you are doing specifically now uh, on the platform of ADL. And I think it was ADL that actually formally hosted that event uh, on Capitol yes, Hill. Yes, yes. Very and proud to host that. Recently. Absolutely. And, and it spoke so 
powerfully of the impact that ADL continues to make in this world. Uh, so my father, by the way, was a big, my Jewish father was very, a very big supporter of the ADL and always spoke of it uh, so highly. It was so important to him. And I want to continue uh, his legacy and support you in your work at ADL. So uh, I'll ask you before we close our conversation to tell us specifically how we can find ADL and its work in this area in particular. Uh, but also, um, Icon, you know, maybe uh, at this stage, and, and I'm looking at our time and realizing uh, We've been talking. We're probably pushing the patience of our listeners. So thank you for staying with us on this really, really important subject. And if you find Icon as compelling as I do, I'm, I'm sure you're looking down and saying, really, uh, has it only been that much time? So <laughs> we have a little mix out there, I'm sure. But I, I do want to conclude by asking you, um, what each of us can do in this moment. Um, is there something practical that we can do even to support you in your work at ADL? What can we do in this moment coming away from this? I've been inspired. You, it's been very provocative. I've had several streams of consciousness as we've been talking because I'm realizing how much work I have to do. In fact, offline, uh, I'll tell you more about something I alluded to in an email exchange surrounding this very podcast. Just when I thought I was sitting with the safest people on earth in a new coalition, working against uh, certain forms of hate and human contempt, in the midst of that, erupted some distinctly anti-Semitic language uh, and ideas that I thought that I and, and the group I was with actually failed at confronting effectively in the moment that it erupted. So um, this is very fresh for me and something I'm wrestling with even as we speak. Uh, so can you give us one concluding word of, of instruction, direction, coaching, if you will? What can each of us do coming away from this podcast? So first that of is all, concrete. First of all, please visit ADL.org uh, for all the, the great work we do. Uh, but also if you're interested in the survey I just mentioned, please also visit global. 100.adl.org, which is our global 100 survey, which will give you, you know, the 2014 and 2019 results of global antisemitism survey. And as we speak, we are preparing to fill yet another survey, which we'll release early next year, which should also be a grim reminder to all of us where we are globally. So that's concerning how to find our work. And, and folks, look for the links in the text surrounding this podcast. We always give that to you. So if you're listening and you say, I just can't, uh, all you're going to have to do is click. And 
But my final one take-home message would be, you know, be an ally, be a good ally. So how does allyship work? Uh, let me end with something um, that touched me deeply uh, from Rob's presentation back in 2015 at Oxford. Hmm. When, you know, Rob did a wonderful survey of uh, evangelical Christians in Turkey. And one of his findings was that faith leaders and community members uh, were expecting to be martyred. You know, they were literally uh, couldn't see a, a peaceful existence. And they felt that murder was imminent, that uh, they will pay for their faith with their lives. And that to me was such a, an, you know, of course, I, I knew about all the persecution and discrimination in the country, but that sad state of affairs, that uh, Rob giving me a chance to look into the minds and hearts of Turkey's persecuted Christians was really moving. It's and, and that's the kind of moving story that pushes you to ask, how can I be a better ally? So, for example, in the United States, when we have these mass shootings, when we have these synagogue shootings, when we have hate crimes and incitement, again, I think it begs the same question. How can I, in my individual capacity, be a better ally You know, in my workplace, in my school? in my church and synagogue or mosque, uh, you know, in my neighborhood, uh, in, 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 with, with my kids uh, and their friends. Uh, and I know this sounds very individualistic, uh, but I think besides all the great legislative work we do, the advocacy work we do, we should also try to be individual friends and allies. I've always felt the Rob to be one such person. He knows I have turned to him at times when I need friendship and advice. And I hope he knows we are always available as a family of allies and friends. Uh, and I think if we just increase the scale, if we all become good allies for one another, good friends, uh, I think that's one great place to begin from. Well, in my evangelical tradition icon, we say, brother, that'll preach. And I thank you for that, because it, it really leaves us with something concrete we can each do. We, we have agency. Uh, we, we can act uh, at will. Uh, there are some... Uh, mild encumbrances to some things, to some initiatives, but at the, for the most part, I'm grateful that we still live in an environment where we have freedom to act uh, according to conscience. And I think it's too easy for folks uh, to say, you know, well, I wish something could be done, but, you know, those people are just never going to do it. Well, there's always you and me. We are here. And we can do something. And when each does something, it adds up 
to the many. So thank you, Icon, for what you do. Thank you, I'll say personally, for your friendship, for the wisdom you've imparted to me, for the role model you have been for all of us. Thank you for the good work you continue to do now at ADL through your position at ADL. Uh, we have a long ways to go, folks, but we're in this together. We're fellow travelers. Uh, so we have each other. Let's be each other's allies, but more importantly, an ally for those who are alone, uh, who do suffer, uh, who are isolated. Uh, let's be their allies as well. Uh, Icon, you've given us a, a wonderful model for Bonhoeffrian uh, ways of seeing and engaging the world. Thank you so much for the time you've spent here. I'd like to do it again. I think our podcast family will want us to do it again. For now, uh, I'll simply say, let's get to work. Let's Thank continue you, Rob, to work for having together. me. This was really, as, as always, this was a great pleasure to join you. You've been listening to my conversation with my friend and esteemed colleague, Dr. Icon Erdemir, uh, lately of ADL, but you'll find him in a lot of other spaces as well. <laughs>